Please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy 3, and we're going to begin our look at 1 Timothy 3.16 today. Remember that after beginning the letter by commanding Timothy uh, to deal with the false teaching that had arisen in Ephesus, uh, followed by a discussion of uh, the roles of men and women and of elders and deacons in the church, Paul reminded Timothy that the church is God's family. Uh, through whom he manifests his presence in the world. And he also reminded him that the church manifests God's presence in the world by standing strong in the defense and proclamation of the truth. And that led up to what we'll be looking at this morning, where we'll see that Paul offers a summary of the doctrinal center of that truth, outlining in seven brief lines uh, the saving work of our Lord Jesus and we're going to look at the first three of those lines this morning. Now, I'm, I'm including this introductory line as part of this uh, saying. I think it, it has to be a part of it, even though it seems like he might be quoting something beginning in the next line, as we'll see. Um, but I'd just like to read the verse and then ask for the Lord's guidance in prayer. Uh, Paul has just reminded him in verse 14, these things I write to you, Though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And that leads him to say, speaking of their role as the pillar and ground of the church, truth, that leads to this saying that he's going to give them. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Let's take a moment to pray and then we'll begin our examination of, of this verse. Holy Father, I do thank you so much for your great uh, love for us. I thank you that we can all be here together this morning. Uh, we pray for those who cannot be here due to illness that you will Heal them and bring them back to us. For those who are traveling, we ask that you would keep them safe and bring them back to us as well. And for those of us who are here, we're just asking you for the filling of your spirit and with understanding so that we might properly grasp what it is that you desire to say to us this morning uh, through these words that you inspired our departed brother Paul to write so many years ago as your words to us. Help us to receive them as such. And as a result, to become more like Christ. We ask these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, over the centuries, and we had a, maybe a couple of examples this morning, uh, Christians have sometimes come up with abbreviated ways of referring to the story of redemption, especially in poems or songs. Uh, for just one modern example, consider the chorus of a popular worship song entitled, Lord, I Lift Your Name on High. Here's what it says. You came from heaven to earth to show the way. From the earth to the cross, my debt to pay. From the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky, Lord, I lift your name on high. Now notice how much is left unsaid in that chorus. Um, who is the Lord to whom the song refers? 
What does it mean that he came from heaven to earth? Why is the cross important? From the earth to the cross. Well, it has something to do with the debt, but what debt was paid? It doesn't say. What does it mean that the Lord went from the grave to the sky? And why is that important? None of these things are stated in any way in the song. Yet every informed Christian knows what they mean. The Lord is Jesus, who was God and became man by means of the incarnation. Then he died on the cross for our sins as our substitute and bore the wrath of God there. Then he rose from the dead, conquering death on our behalf. Then he ascended to the Father's right hand where he lives forever to intercede for us as our great high priest. These are just some of the things that we will think about when we sing that chorus. Um, it implies all kinds of things that it assumes the one who's singing it will know, right? It suggests things that we should think about when we sing this song, that we should contemplate. And all those ideas I just suggested and even more are communicated by means of a sort of Christian shorthand, right? Uh, which uses language that is intended to make us think about a lot more than what is actually said. But this way of communicating is not new. In fact, we find that sometimes the early church did the same kind of thing, and I think the text before us this morning demonstrates that. This is No, they didn't do this all the time. Uh, in fact, a lot of the things that they sang are... Lots of explicit doctrines in them, especially if you go back and look at the Psalms, right? But there's a place for these uh, songs with these short lines that are suggestive of deeper truths that those who sing them will understand. I mean, this morning we sang, Lord, I lift your name on high. Never once said who the Lord was we were lifting our name on high to, but everybody knew it's Jesus, right? And there's a place for that kind of thing, and we see that here. In fact, many people believe that Paul is quoting an early Christian hymn that he may have authored, or that they, someone in the church in Ephesus may have authored. He expected, apparently, that they knew it, and uh, they think that he's probably citing something like a hymn because of the structure of the verses and the way they're laid out, especially in the Greek, where the endings are all similar and the types of prepositions that are used. It flows a certain way. And, but you can tell it in an English translation that this isn't typical Pauline writing, right? This is poetic in form. And so many scholars, as I said, believe that it's a hymn that Paul was employing as an inspired work, right? Um, in order to briefly remind his readers of the history of redemption in Jesus. And when they hear each of these lines, just like when we sing, Lord, I lift your name on high, and we sing that chorus, we're supposed to think of the things that it suggests. That's the same here. So that's what we're going to try to do this morning as we look through, or at least begin to look through some of these lines that Paul cites. We're going to try and, and think about the kinds of things he'd want us to think about, uh, the th kinds of things that are suggested by each of these lines, and we'll continue to do that next week. With that in mind, we'll turn to the first line, which is actually an introductory formula, but I think it is, the way Paul presents this, 
let's assume he is citing a hymn that he or someone else wrote, but that he believed is obviously inspired and from the Holy Spirit and authoritative. He clearly doesn't want it to be taken without this introductory formula in the way he's presenting it to us here. Maybe they didn't sing it that way, but Paul wants them to remember it the way he's giving it with this introductory formula to it. So I'm going to include that as a part of this uh, saying that Paul wants us to know. So the first line is this introductory formula, which in the New King James reads, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, before we're done, we'll get into some of the Ephesian background to why Paul would have put this the way he did. Um, but for now, I just want to note that the Greek word translated as without controversy, that's actually one Greek word, that's the way it's here in the New King James Version. It might also be rendered uh, something like this, by common confession. Uh, what everybody says is true. And therefore, nobody denies it's true. And therefore, it's without controversy, right? And that's the sense of the word. It's, um, it could even be translated uh, as beyond question. I think the older version, the NSB, has by common confession, and the newer version has beyond question. Um, the word refers to something that is agreed upon as unquestionably true, which is why everybody says it. It's, that's why it's commonly confessed. Nobody denies it. Nobody thinks it can be denied, right? And Paul's intent in using the word is to indicate that what he's about to say is something that all true Christians receive and that they receive it as something beyond debate. Now, he's, that's an important thing, a statement to make in introducing what he's saying here, right? Because, remember, he's left Timothy there to deal with some false teaching. And so this is a way that Paul's drawing them back to the core of the truth that surely we can all agree on. We've always agreed on this, right? And in a way to remind Timothy and the Ephesians that this is the kind of stuff nobody can deny, that, you're, that as the pillar and ground of the truth, you must stand fast on, right? The kind of things I'm going to mention here, that if scholars thinking it's a hymn that was employed in Ephesus, if they're right, Paul's saying, and you sing it all the time. <laughs> and you should mean it, right, when you sing it. That would be the idea, if, if that's the case here. As Robert Yarbrough has aptly put it, uh, the adverb there, translated by common confession or without question, highlights the magnitude, excellence, and non-negotiable veracity of the Christolo Christological affirmations upcoming. That's true. These affirmations are a part of what Paul spoke of as a great mystery. He said, great is the mystery uh, that he's talking about here. And when he speaks of this great mystery, he's talking about something that God has revealed to us, but that we did not know and we could not know unless God revealed it to us. As Denny Burke correctly observes, Mystery is a technical term in Paul's writings. It refers not to something currently hidden, you know, that we've got to figure out. It refers uh, to something, not to something currently hidden, but to something formerly hidden, but now revealed by Christ and his gospel. So when we read passages like this, we read a mystery as something that was hidden, but that is now revealed by God. Now, there are some things 
that are mysteries in the Christian faith, we might say, that are still unrevealed, right? Uh, we don't know how Christ can be two natures in one person, or we don't know ultimately the Trinity, how God shares one being in three persons. We don't understand how God is sovereign and that human beings are responsible for everything that they do, right? And they're not automatons. Uh, we, there's still some things that are mystery to us in the sense that we'll never figure them out, right? Uh, and that God has not yet revealed to us and may never reveal to us. Um, so we can use the word in that way, um, but when Paul's using the word, when he's regularly using the word, he's, re he's referring to something that had once been hidden, but that is now revealed. Um, <clears throat> he'd already used the term, actually, when describing the qualifications of deacons uh, back in verses 8 and 9, when he said, likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. Now there, Paul was referring more specifically to the truth content of this great mystery as something that was to be believed, the mystery of the faith, the content of truth that we believe and we trust in, right? That's the idea. But here he's, he's, he's talking about when he says, great is the mystery of godliness, he's, he's talking about it more from the perspective of what that truth should produce in us when we trust in it. The mystery of the faith focuses on the fact that there's truth that we trust in. Uh, this is, when we trust in that truth, it should make us godly. I think that's why he's calling it the mystery of godliness here. And he's using godliness in the sense of um, becoming more like God, right? Uh, bearing that... Uh, family resemblance to our Heavenly Father that we should bear. Becoming more like Christ. That's what it means to be godly. Living out a holy life. Um, this is the way he's used the word godliness earlier in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, when he said, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. So why do we want to pray for peace? So that we can focus on living godly, reverent, holy lives, right? This also seems to be the way that Paul used the word numerous times in the rest of the letter. For example, just, just one more example, from 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. Um, Paul says, but reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. The assumption there is that if you get off into these ridiculous arguments about silly doctrines, uh, we'll get into that more when we get to that, that passage, um, you're not going to be, it's not going to make you more godly doing that. <laughs> it's going to undermine your goal of godliness. And he goes on to say, uh, for bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Um, not only do you want to avoid uh, getting off into these errant views because it will undermine your seeking godliness, 
but it, but it'll also take away from you something you should highly prize in the process. Godliness is to be highly prized. Um, not winning nitpicky arguments, right, over silly things, but godliness. I think uh, Denny Burke is again helpful when he writes that godliness denotes the duty man owes to God in terms of both believing and living rightly. The mystery of godliness, therefore, is the revelation of the duty that man owes to God. This duty is perfectly revealed by none other than Jesus himself in his life, ministry, and work on behalf of sinners, and that life, ministry, and work is summarized in the confession that follows. Well said. Paul was announcing here that he was about to communicate revealed truth that was received by all, all of the believers there in Ephesus, in fact, all of the believers to whom he would have written any letter, I'm sure, as incontrovertibly true and which ought to lead them all to godliness. So we'll not be surprised to discover that that truth is all about our Lord Jesus, and that takes us to the next line, which has to do with the incarnation of Christ. The second line has to do with the incarnation of Christ. Here's the way it reads in the latter part of verse 16 in the New King James Version. God was manifested in the flesh. Now, many of you might be surprised to discover that the New King James Version reads a little bit differently from the version that you might be using. Uh, whereas the New King James says that God was manifest in the flesh, the ESV, for example, the ADSB, or the NIV, and a number of other modern translations, simply say that he was manifested, or perhaps they say he was revealed in the flesh. Manifest and revealed mean the same thing. Um, so which is it? Is it God was manifested in the flesh, or was it he was manifested in the flesh? And why are these things different in these versions? Well, they're different because of a, of a different reading in the Greek manuscripts, what we call a variant reading. Uh, many manuscripts say theos, uh, and, and many others say hos, which means who. Um, but it's masculine, so you have to assume it's he who. And that's why some translations just say he. And see it as just kind of standing for that third person masculine pronoun, he. Um, I would put to you that it's not going to make a whole lot of difference which reading you follow as to the meaning of the text. I, I prefer the New King James reading. I, I think it's more likely that Paul was beginning a sentence with the proper subject than with a relative pronoun. Uh, his grammar was not that bad. But for those who think he's quoting a hymn, he might just be picking up from a second or third line in a hymn, which already mentions Jesus, or maybe Jesus as God, and then goes on to say who was manifested in the flesh. And so he just picks up from that line. I guess you could say that if he's quoting something, that could be why it's like this. So it's, it's not that you couldn't come up with reasons to go either way that are perfectly sensible, but as, again, I don't think it's going to make any difference because even if you have a translation that isn't saying God was manifest in the flesh and clearly referring to Jesus as God, when it says that he or was manifested in the flesh, well, who is it that was manifested in the flesh? It's Jesus, and everybody knows it. And... Before he was manifest in the flesh, 
Who was he? Well, everybody knows that's God. He was God before he's men in flesh. He was God after he was manifest in the flesh. He's still God. He'll always be God. He's eternally God. So every believer would have known that, and Paul doesn't have to spell it out. He could just say he, and everybody would know what he meant, and everybody would assume that Jesus as God was manifested in the flesh, whether it's stated explicitly that God was manifest in the flesh or not. Um, this was just common understanding, right? Uh, so, so if you have a translation that doesn't say what the New King James says here, you haven't lost a reference to the deity of Christ and somehow he's no longer God in the New Testament. He clearly is God everywhere else. I mean, for example, um, after beginning his gospel by referring to Jesus as the Word and telling us that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God, a very clear statement that Jesus is God and preexisted as God, the Apostle John then goes on to declare in John 1.14 that the Word, Jesus, became flesh. God became flesh, because remember the Word is God. God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, Paul also declared the same truth just as clearly in one of his own earlier epistles when he admonished the Philippian believers in Philippians 2, 5-7 to let this mind be in you, which was... At also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, which is saying, who being God, right, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, and some of your translations uh, might have, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped after. The New King James takes it this way. He didn't think it was a slight on God or robbery to declare himself to be equal with God because he was God. Um, if you read it the other way, he didn't see equality with God as something he had to strive for because he already had it. He was God. So that's the two different ways it can be taken here. It says, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. God became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, uh, so whether we read the text here in 1 Timothy as explicitly stating that God was manifest in the flesh or simply stating that he was manifest in the flesh, it's an obvious reference to the incarnation of the Lord Jesus, who, although God, became man for the sake of our salvation. And all these well-taught believers in Ephesus would have known that. And we can't be saved unless that happened. They would know that too. Um, in fact, the author of Hebrews, which I think probably was Paul, but I'm not going to go to the stake for that one, uh, emphasizes that the incarnation was absolutely essential for our salvation when he says this in Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. Inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise should in the same, referring to Jesus that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he, referring to Jesus again, had to be made like his brethren. It was necessary that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people to bear the wrath of God for our sins. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those 
were tempted. Now, all of this kind of information about the necessity of the incarnation was a great mystery revealed by God. None of us would ever have thought this or come up with it had God not revealed it to us. It's a great mystery. And all the kinds of things I've just talked to you about are the kinds of things that should come to our minds when we say that Jesus was manifested in the flesh. We should remember that he was God who took out our humanity so that we could be saved. There's a whole lot more we could say about it. There's a lot more that the author of Hebrews says about it uh, when he talks about Jesus as our high priest. And, but we would not have known these things. We could not have known it had God not revealed it to us. And the same is true about what Paul said in the next line, the third line, which is about the vindication of Christ. The first line is that the line we just read was about the, the incarnation. This is about the vindication of Christ. Here the New King James reads, justified in the spirit. I think I might actually prefer the translation found in versions such as the ESV or New American Standard, for example, which, which say that Jesus was vindicated by the spirit. I think that's the sense of the word here. The Greek word is typically used by Paul with reference. In fact, every other place he uses it, I think he uses it this way. Uh, he uses it to refer to believers as having been justified through faith in Christ, um, assuming the doctrine of the imputation of the righteousness of Christ to us, um, that Christ bore our sin on the cross, our sins were imputed to him, though he did not sin himself, and he bore the wrath of God for our sins and took our place in that regard, and then his righteousness was credited to us, and on the basis of that righteousness, we are declared righteous in the eyes of God. We're not guilty in the eyes of God. And that's the way Paul typically uses this word when he says uh, justified. He's speaking of believers who are declared righteous by faith. Now, if we assume he has a similar meaning here, a declaration of righteousness, it certainly doesn't mean that any righteousness was imputed to Christ. Uh, it's his own righteousness that serves as the basis for a declaration of Christ's righteousness, right? Uh, and so, um, if it means something like that here, it, it would mean something like this. The Holy Spirit, in some way, declared Jesus to be righteous. Um, but this is very close to the other meaning that the word can have, which is to be vindicated, which is more than just a declaration. It's a demonstration of someone to be right or righteous. It's proving it in some way. In fact, Jesus used the word justified in both of these ways. Um, um, when he taught the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, he used the word justified there, I think, in the sense of uh, being justified by grace through faith as a believer. But in another uh, place uh, where he spoke of the wisdom that he, had, he was demonstrating in his, in his ministry, he said this, wisdom is justified by her children. In that sense, he, he meant it in the sense of vindicated. Wisdom is vindicated by her children. And by this, he meant that wisdom, that's in Matthew eleven nineteen. by the way. Uh, by this, he meant that wisdom that he displayed was clearly seen to be right 
to be true wisdom, the wisdom of God, because of the results it produced. He was referring to wisdom as thus vindicated by what it produces. Now, we sometimes say the proof is in the pudding, right? Well, you can tell true wisdom when you see what it does, the fruits it produces. And that's the point that he was making. And here in 1 Timothy, I think Paul's saying the same kind of thing about the Holy Spirit vindicating Jesus. That is, he demonstrated the truth of Jesus as the Messiah by the way that he worked in and through him. Uh, John 3.34, I believe it is, tells us that the Father had given Jesus the Spirit without measure. Right? He's the only one who's ever had the Spirit without measure that we read about in the Bible, right? Jesus. Um, now, what does he want us to think about when he says this? That Jesus, who, who was made flesh, clearly while he was in the flesh, carrying out his messianic ministry, in some way was vindicated by the Spirit. How? How did the Spirit demonstrate the truth of the claims of Jesus? Well, in a number of ways that we could look throughout the Gospels and find probably a lot of instances of this, but I'll give you some examples. Think about the baptism of Jesus. For example, in Matthew 3, 16 and 17, when Jesus had been baptized, he came up immediately from the water. Behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. There you have the Spirit, God the Spirit and God the Father vindicating Jesus, right? Demonstrating, proving that Jesus is who he's claiming to be and will claim to be from thenceforth. There's also uh, the words of our Lord Jesus on a pretty interesting occasion. He responded to the false claim that he was casting out demons by the power of Satan. This was a false charge that that some of his enemies amongst the Pharisees and scribes and so forth had leveled at him. They didn't want to admit he was really the son of God. So they were trying to say that, well, he really just casts out demons by the power of Satan. He must have some deal with Satan or something like that, right? And, of course, Jesus says that's ridiculous. Even Satan is not so stupid to, to think that a house divided it against itself will not fall and so forth. But, but here's what he, he says... In Matthew 12, 28, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, which is his claim, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, what does that mean? That's tantamount to saying, I am the Messiah and have brought this kingdom. <laughs> I am the king. And the Spirit is proving it through me every time I cast out a demon. The Spirit is showing you all who I am. Jesus is being vindicated by the Spirit. These are the kinds of things we should think about when we, when we say that he was vindicated by the Spirit. Um, of course, later the Apostle Paul would indicate that the ultimate vindication of Jesus by the Holy Spirit was through his resurrection from the dead. This is clear, I think, from the opening of his epistle to the Romans. I'm going to read the first four verses of Romans to you to show you what I mean. 
he writes, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection of the dead. The, the Holy Spirit declared with great power that Jesus truly was the Son of God when he was risen from the dead. So we could go back and look at other instances throughout the Gospels, right? But we can see that the Holy Spirit was constantly at work in the Messianic work of our Lord Jesus, demonstrating the truth of his claim to be the Messiah and also the very Son of God, equating himself with God, claiming to be God. Well, the Holy Spirit vindicated those claims constantly in his working through Jesus. And all this information about the work of the Spirit, it's a great mystery that was revealed by God, or we wouldn't know it. We could not have known it had he not revealed it to us. And as we conclude our study for this morning, we'll pick up the rest of this next week, hopefully the next four lines next week, um, I'd like to remind you once again that this epistle was written to Timothy while he served in Ephesus, and uh, it was intended to be shared with the Ephesian church quite clearly as well. So it was sort of also written to them, although addressed to Timothy. And so that's why we've often taken time to recall the historical background of the church there as we try to interpret the, the epistle. And you know, be surprised that I'd like to do so for a few moments now. But this time I'd like to remind you of an intense negative reaction that Paul once received while he was ministering in Ephesus. He ministered there for a total of about three or just over three years in total if we put all the information together in the New Testament about it. And in about his second year of ministry there, there was a particularly pronounced negative reaction, public negative reaction to him and to his ministry. And of course, that's recorded by our departed brother Luke in the book of Acts. <coughs> and as we read the account together, I want to point out some similarities in language that's used there with the way Paul introduces what he says here in 1 Timothy 3.16. I'm going to begin reading in Acts 19. I'm going to read verses 23 through 36. Acts 19, verses 23 through 36. And uh, I, think this would, I think this is well worth the, the effort. I could have begun with this background. I chose to end with it today. And uh, hopefully it's something you'll keep in mind for next week. We read in Acts 19, 23, that about that time, again, this would be, according to verse 10 earlier in the context, after about two years of ministry in Ephesus at this point, there arose a great commotion about the way. And that's what Christianity was commonly known as early on, the way, the way of life. If you look back in the Old Testament and the Psalms and the Proverbs, there's a way of life and a way of death. 
Jesus pronounced himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. He's the way of life. He's the way of truth. And so you can see why the early Christians might refer to their faith as the way, right? And so there, there, there arose a great commotion about the way, which is to say about Christianity, about the gospel, about the ministry of Paul in Ephesus. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, uh, many modern translations will say Artemis. They're the same. Diana is another way of referring to Artemis. But actually, the Greek here is technically Artemis. I think the New King James, as the Old King James, assume most people in, in, who are uh, English-speaking would have known her as Diana, and that's why they used that word there. But Artemis and Diana are the same. Uh, it's, a, it's a goddess that they worshipped greatly in Ephesus. There was, in fact, that there was a temple there that was known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and it was a temple to Artemis or Diana. And it was very prominent. You could see it when you were coming to the city of Ephesus up on a hill. It, you couldn't miss it. You could see it from a long way off. So it was a big deal to the Ephesians, this worship of Artemis. And this guy, Demetrius, he made silver shrines of Diana or Artemis, and uh, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. So this was a big business, Artemis or Diana worship. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have a prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see in here that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they're not gods which are made with hands think that would go without say, but anyway. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana. That's the way they referred to her as great. What does Paul say is great? The mystery of godliness, which is all about Jesus. So who's great? <laughs> Jesus, uh, not Diana. And so he says, uh, you know, also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed whom all Asia and the world worship. Maybe a little hyperbole there, although she was much worshipped throughout probably Greco-Roman society as either Artemis or Diana by many people. And now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, were, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Uh, that's, you know, back in those days, you didn't, you know, have movie theaters and such. Entertainment was, if there's a great commotion in town, everybody wants to go see what's going on, right? Uh, and so you have a bunch of people that didn't know why they're there. They're just there because there's a commotion. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours. 
Great is Diana of the Ephesians, or great is Artemis of the Ephesians, whichever translation you're using. So they refer to her as great in the third person. Twice we're hearing people call her great. Now we're saying for about two hours they shouted over and over and over and over again, great is Diana of the Ephesians. It's as though they thought shouting this would somehow do something, <laughs> you know. Didn't Jesus once talk about the vain repetitions of the pagans? Maybe there's something like that going on here. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana? Over and over again. Great, 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 they're saying about her. And of the image which fell down from Zeus. They believe that this image of Diana that they worship came from the heavens, so to speak. From Zeus, who, who is their chief god, right? Who does Paul say actually came from heaven? The true heaven and the true God, Jesus. He was manifested in the flesh, though. It wasn't some stone figure. And then they say, therefore, since these things cannot be denied, and that's not the same word for beyond question or commonly confessed that Paul uses in 1 Timothy 3, but the concept is the same. To them, this is unquestionably true. These people, there are people here denying it, but they're denying something that we all know can't be denied, is what they're saying. And so he says, therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. What's the point he's making? Well, it doesn't really matter what they say. We all know the truth. You can't deny the truth, right? That's his argument, basically. Now, I'm, I'm going to put to you that the Ephesian believers would have been quite familiar with a common view of the pagan community there regarding Artemis or Diana. And they would have been very familiar with her being referred to as the great goddess Diana. Most of them, I'm sure, would have remembered those events. And what happened? These are not the kind of events that happen in a city like Ephesus that are easily forgotten by the people there, right? And so I would put to you that when Paul says, great is the mystery of godliness, He's choosing that language on purpose. He's reminding Ephesian believers who are a minority in Ephesus and who are now undergoing attacks from within, not just from the pagan beliefs outside, but from within their own community of false teaching. that Jesus is the one who's truly great. It's the truth about Jesus that really matters. That's what's unquestionably true. And I think that that's the kind of thing we should always remember when false teaching arises, isn't it? We should go back to our foundation. What God has revealed as true through Jesus Christ. That notable among those things is the fact that he was God who became man for our salvation and all that that entails. 
and he was vindicated by the Spirit throughout his ministry. He was shown over and over and over again to be who he claimed to be. God, come in the flesh to save us from our sins. The true king, the true Messiah. He was shown in all that he said and did. Now next week we'll continue this examination of the summary overview of the ministry of Jesus and we'll be reminded of even more truth that is beyond question. But I would just like for us all to be encouraged today to stand firm as a, the pillar and ground of the truth. There are people out there that say that what they believe is unquestionably true. Today, just like they said about Diana, ask any atheist and he'll tell you what is unquestionably true. Now, never mind that in the history of mankind, it's pretty hard to find somebody who would deny that there is some sort of God. But yet they have the hubris to say it's unquestionably true that there's no God, many of them. The more humble ones say, well, we, you just, that's not something you can know. We have all kinds of things being put out there as unquestionably true today, don't we? On the internet and in the media. But we know what's really unquestionably true. And the same Holy Spirit that vindicated Jesus has worked in our hearts. He's given us new life in Christ. And we look at the miracles that Jesus performed and the apostles performed, and we often think, if only I saw a miracle like that, my strength would be, my faith would be strengthened, right? And I want to put this to you. There is no greater miracle than taking a dead sinner and making them alive. And if you think it's not a miracle, you haven't got a clue how sinful you are apart from Christ. Or you would know with every fiber of your being it took a miracle for that to happen. That's why the doctrine of sin is so important. You can't understand what the Spirit's done unless you understand sin. He's vindicated Jesus to every one of us unquestionably who believe in Jesus. We believe in Jesus because the Spirit has vindicated him in our hearts. He's given us new life. He's granted us faith and repentance and we know we wouldn't have that without the Spirit. We should be encouraged. Let's not ever get down when people challenge our faith. Let's never get on the defensive and cower. We've got the truth. And there's nothing to be ashamed of. Holy Father, it's my great prayer that we will be encouraged by this look in the text today, by look, looking at some of the history of what happened long ago and seeing that things aren't really that different today. There are false gods all around us. People just don't typically... Uh, make idols, uh, physical idols out of wood or stone or gold or silver. They just worship the gold and silver instead. And Lord, we thank you 
that you have done for us what you did for those Ephesian believers, what you did for Paul, who wrote this, and Timothy, to whom he wrote it. You have worked miraculously in our hearts and vindicated Jesus to us by the Spirit. And we know that these truths that we hold about Jesus are beyond question. And Lord, help us never to forget that. Lord, we'll give you all the glory for what you do in and through us. And we ask that if there's anyone here today who has not yet come to know Jesus, that you, through the power of your spirit, would do for him or her what you've done for us. Regenerate them. Give them new life. Give them eyes to see who Jesus really is. Faith to trust in him. Repentance to turn from their sins. We ask this for your glory. And in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. As always, I thank you so much for your kind attention. Part two next week, Lord willing. Or as George would say, Lord willing and the creek don't rise.